Welcome to the Reeducation with Eli Lake. That's me. Today's show is all about the new war on comedy. Later on, we have special guest John Viner, a veteran comedy writer in Hollywood who has contributed to hilarious shows like Family Guy and Duncanville. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. For my generation, Generation X, this was something that children learned in kindergarten. It was obvious, a cliché. Like, I disagree with what you have to say, but I will fight for your right to say it. Americans have, until very recently, been a free speech culture. The censors were the villains, the comics, DJs, musicians, and authors who challenged dogma with controversial speech were the heroes. Just watch The People versus Larry Flint. It's about struggles of the late pornographer to publish Hustler magazine. Unpopular speech is absolutely vital to the health of our nation. It was a tribute to the rights of Americans to offend their neighbors. I'm not trying to convince you that you should like what Larry Flint does. If you don't like Howard Stern, you can always change the station. I don't like what Larry Flint does. But what I do like is that I live in a country where you and I can make that decision for ourselves. So the story went. And then it began to change, slowly at first, and then rapidly. Speech itself became a form of violence. In the 1980s and 1990s, this idea was limited to a fringe inside the academy. But with the rise of the internet, all kinds of digital speech was deemed harmful. There is hate speech misinformation, disinformation, incitement. And with all of this came restrictions. The first targets were terrorists, something we could all agree on. Images of nude children were also a no-no, of course, on the internet. Then there was doxing, or posting the personal information of people online. After the election of Donald Trump in 2016, social media platforms, pressed by Democrats, focused on purveyors of foreign propaganda and disinformation. So the challenge for you and for me is to refuse to be confused. So they need a very big, desperate distraction in order to uh, sort of change the narrative. Mueller knows the president has repeatedly tried to pressure law enforcement officials and impede the investigations into Russian interference. Congress investigated a scheme by Russia to purchase Facebook ads and create phony Twitter accounts to influence the 2016 election. After the white supremacist gathering in Charlottesville and the murder of a counter-protester, hate speech became a target. Various pressure groups began a campaign to push online platforms to remove speech and content that it said harmed minorities. Books warning about the risks of sex transition surgery for teenagers were removed from Amazon because they were harmful to the transgender community. After the uh, Minneapolis police officer choked George Floyd to death, institutions began a purge. Editors and school principals were fired for saying all lives instead of black lives matter. And during the recent pandemic, discussions of vaccines and the origins of COVID-19 were monitored, heavily censored. In the fall of 2020, weeks before the presidential election, an accurate story about Hunter Biden's laptop was removed from Twitter and made harder to share on Facebook. The Twitter account for the New York Post's opinion page was locked out for a month before the election. Major news organizations either ignored what was on the laptop 
and the implications, or claimed without evidence that it was Russian dark propaganda. Experts say it has all the hallmarks of information laundering. CNN reported on Friday that U.S. authorities are seeing if those emails we just talked about are connected to an ongoing Russian disinformation effort. The FBI is now investigating whether those alleged Hunter Biden emails are actually connected to a larger foreign intelligence operation. Comedy itself is now in the crosshairs. Shane Gillis, who was set to become a new cast member a few years ago on Saturday Night Live, was fired from the show after old clips on YouTube of him emerged poking fun at Asian Americans. Sarah Silverman lost a part in a movie for a sketch in which she donned blackface. In the fall, a few Netflix employees, with an assist from the media, tried to get the platform to remove Dave Chappelle's latest special because of his comments on the trans community. The latest example, of course, is the podcast hosted by comedian Joe Rogan, whose interviews with a dissident researcher on COVID vaccines prompted Neil Young and Joni Mitchell to remove their music from Spotify if it continued to host Rogan's show. The comedian's declaration that gender is a fact and his characterization of the LGBTQ community as too sensitive prompted a walkout by staff and support from transgender rights advocates, some of whom accused Netflix of profiting from hate speech. We need to say it's not okay. This hate conversation was not their intention. We understand that jokes are jokes, things are things. But at the end of the day, if it's promoting hate and it's promoting discrimination, you are directly a cause of it if you're allowing it to happen and you're not doing anything about it. And that goes for anyone in this country, specifically people of power in the entertainment industry. This is not a problem for the handful of high-profile comedians who've been targets of many of these mini-campaigns. In most cases, the biggest comedians today will prevail or have prevailed. The real issue is the message it sends to all of the other comics who are still coming up. It means that comedy today exists in a state of fear. Entertainment executives are afraid of activists. Comedians are afraid of certain topics. And the rest of us are becoming afraid to laugh lest we offend the latest group demanding protection from speech they find offensive. It's not the first time. Our society has dealt with this problem before. This brings to mind great late comedian Lenny Bruce. He was ruined by a series of lawsuits in the most culturally sophisticated cities in America. In Chicago, San Francisco, and New York, Lenny Bruce was arrested on charges of obscenity. He fought the law and won in Chicago, L.A., and San Francisco, but his career was in tatters. Between 1962 and 1966, Lenny Bruce went from a rising comedy star who regularly appeared on late-night television programs to a pariah. Sadly, his heroin addiction became worse, and in 1966, right before the kind of new cultural expansions of the 1960s, he overdosed and died. And yet in death, Lenny Bruce was martyred. Comics that followed him, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, continued to push the boundaries of what was acceptable to discuss in the context of stand-up comedy. But they thrived. Lenny Bruce may have lost his life, but in death, he prevailed. He helped change the culture. In a sense, he died for Carlin, Pryor, and Murphy's 
sins. They don't give you a list. Wouldn't you think it'd be normal if they didn't want you to say something to tell you what it is? Nobody even tells you when you're a kid what the words are that you're supposed to avoid. You have to say them to find out which ones they are. Shit! So what exactly were Lenny Bruce's crimes? According to an unpublished opinion from The People vs. Bruce in 1964, his offenses included a joke about Eleanor Roosevelt's breasts, an anecdote about copulating with a chicken, using the verb to come in a sexual way, and discussing urination, testicles, and fellatio. For this, the state of New York wanted to lock Lenny Bruce in a cage. In 2022, Lenny Bruce would be able to say all of that. And not only would no one care, because he was such a brilliant wordsmith and comic, he would be celebrated for his vulgarity and profanity. But what's interesting is that the one routine he could not say today was not something for which he was prosecuted. And here I want to play a clip from the movie released 10 years after his death with Dustin Hoffman playing Lenny Bruce. Warning, we bleep the N-word in this clip. Well, I was just trying to make a point, and that is that it's the suppression of the word that gives it the power, the violence, the viciousness. If President Kennedy would just go on television and say, I'd like to introduce you to all the in my cabinet, and if he'd just say every he saw, didn't mean anything anymore then you'd never be able to make some six-year-old black kid cry because somebody called him a nigger in school. It's important to hear what Lenny Bruce is saying because it tells us something important about the moment that we're in today. He is using the N-word and other ethnic slurs in this routine to defang them. He asks the audience at the end of the clip to imagine John F. Kennedy using the slur because if it was exposed, uncovered, brought into the light, it could never be wielded as a weapon, as he says, to make a six-year-old black kid cry because someone called him that word in school. Now, Lenny Bruce was trying in 1964 to suck the venom out of that slur. He wanted his audience to see how a taboo exposed to the light was just a word. Today, he would be accused of hate speech for effectively countering hate speech by exposing it. He would be deplatformed. His critics would take his words out of context and accuse him of committing a kind of violence with his routine. Now, I should say that one can disagree with a comedy bit, think it's not funny, and even be offended. But if we do not allow for these kinds of heretics today to hone their craft, to share their comedy, well, it impoverishes our culture. Comedy is both a release valve and a mirror in a democratic society. It's a way to laugh and ridicule the powerful, which is always important, but it's also a way to expose our own hypocrisies, our own failings, to be honest with ourselves. And when it's done best, great comedy can change our minds. It does more than just amuse. It forces us to confront with humor the truths that we avoid. Comedy, in this sense, keeps us humble and human. The great David Zucker, 
man who wrote a very funny movie in 1979 called Airplane, wrote last year in Commentary magazine, we are in a comedy emergency. If we continue on this path, no first responders will be able to help us. Humor will be reduced to five-second anonymous memes on the internet. And movie comedy will be reduced to pablum. Oh, wait. That's where we are now. As the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has just newly come ashore and is bringing the high-quality writing and analysis to U.S. audiences for the first time. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. We have a special offer for listeners of The Re-Education with Eli Lake. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free Spectator hat. Just go to the spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and use offer code LAKE. I just want to say, I've been reading The Spectator for years. They have some of my favorite writers, everyone from Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Christopher Buckley, and Julie Bindel, who's terrific. So I can't say enough about it, and I would recommend listeners to this podcast to give it a whirl. The Spectator is less political party and a more cocktail party. And whether you lean left or right, you are guaranteed to be entertained and enlightened from cover to cover. And that's really a big part of the theme of our show here at The Re-Education, is to say that we are interested in debate, we're interested in testing assumptions, and we're interested in hearing a variety of viewpoints, and not just simply reinforcing ideological dogma. And that's just like The Spectator. So... Again, go to spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and the offer code LAKE. I cannot recommend it enough. All right, everyone. I am so pleased to introduce our guest today, John Viner. He is a writer, an actor, a comic who has worked for years on Family Guy, Duncanville, The Morts, if I'm not mistaken. That was a sketch group, yes. Yes, and is one of my dearest friends, and I will say the funniest guy that I know, John Viner. Thank you so much for coming on the Eli Lake Show. Hey, thank you. And as a thank you to coming on, I think I'm going to buy you a front light so we can see your face. <laughs> I'm working on that. Um, so the top of the day show is the war on comedy, and you are somebody who is in the comedy business. And so first of all, I want to just read for you from an essay by David Zucker, who is the writer, of course, from Airplane and, and a sort of Hollywood legend. It's something I put in my monologue. And what he says is, we are in a comedy emergency. If we continue on this path, no first responders will be able to help us. Humor will be reduced to five-second anonymous memes on the internet, and movie comedy will be reduced to pablum. Oh, wait, that's where we are now. Do you agree with Zucker on this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're I think we're in a bad spot. I don't I don't think it's that dire. I, I think it's it's 
you know, I, I, there's nothing that we can rescue because if you try to rescue it, then you become part of the problem. So there has to be enough of a, a shift as it were that, that people can allow, be allowed to be funny. And again, you know, without being attacked for trying to go outside the safe zone. So I want to ask some of these pressure campaigns against Joe Rogan or Dave Chappelle or Shane Gillis or others like that. Does that have an effect on just the industry in general for everybody else? Do they see that and they say, wait a second, I better watch my step? Yeah, I think I, I mean, I, I, there are countless people who are comedians who have just preemptively erased all of their tweets because there, there are so many people who are looking to annihilate you just because you exist. And that, and a lot of times it almost feels like there's, there are people who are upset that you're succeeding at something. So if they're not succeeding, maybe they should take you down as well. <laughs> so I think, I think there's always a general fear that like, you know, even in a writer's room now, it, you, you, you used to have sort of the ability to say whatever you wanted, as long as it wasn't an ad hominem attack on somebody in the room, you could just, you could play. And I feel like that's been broken down too. So you're, you're constantly feeling, you're feeling vulnerable. So I think that that's why it becomes pablum and just becomes what's innocuous, what is, and and also there's, you know, I think there are marching orders of, of wokeness that if you defy, then you become part of the enemy instead of, Hey, we're all here to make someone laugh. Hopefully more than one person. Comedy can be many things. It could be good. It could be bad. It could be brilliant. It could be stupid, but it, there's a certain kind of American stand-up comedy where the greats, Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, would be able to say something that everyone sort of knew was true, but were afraid to say out loud. And that it, it, it served an important social function in that respect as kind of a, a release. Really of, yeah. You know, I, I, I think that comedy, when it works well, is illuminative of something that you didn't realize you shared with somebody else. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, you noticed that too. And, and, and you also said it in a sharp, quick way that made my brain make this audible noise of, of understanding agreement and, or, or surprise. And yeah, so I, I think, I mean, there's, you know, there's laughter therapy. Like you want, you, you want to expunge the evil spirits in yourself. You want to, you want to feel connected to people. So comedy has always been something that, that it has been connective at the same time that it feels like it might be pointing out divisiveness, it tends to actually say, hey, you know, like, like the 80s was all black guys talk like this, white guys talk like this. And, and when you're the white guy being made fun of, you laughed, but you could also laugh because the black person's making fun of the black. Like it was equal opportunity, but now, you know, we've, we've taken away the, the ability for anyone to speak for any experience that isn't their own. And, and that has made it very hard to cross boundaries because now you can't, you can't step into someone else's shoes because you're told immediately you're not welcome there. And that if you try to go there, you will have to be punished. And yet, you know, it's that, that I feel like is the, the biggest crime against, you know, society is that we're not able to say, I understand what you're going through because then you're told, no, you don't understand. And you can't talk about that stuff, whatever it is. What are some of the topics that you feel that you can't make jokes about anymore? I, I honestly think anything that's not you <laughs> is, right. is problematic. Um, but, but the, like the, the only thing you can really attack is, is white men. 
white straight men. They're like, that's, that's fine. Everything else is kind of, you know, you, you have to tread lightly because you just, you get in, into trouble. So then a lot of comedy just becomes slapstick or just noise comedy or, you know, like it's, it's, it's not specific to, to society. So you have to, I mean, if you look at shows like Big Bang Theory, like I, I couldn't watch that show and it came before all the woke stuff and all that, but I couldn't watch that show because I was like, or even Third Rock from the Sun, like the writing wasn't bad. It's just, this is nonsense. Right. I guess Mr. Ed was also nonsense. There are no talking horses as, long, as far as I know. But you know what I'm saying? Is it just like you, you had to put yourself in this crazy situation so that now these are the new rules and no one's getting hurt because these are crazy rules in the first place. Except there's, it, here's something I found interesting in kind of my research for this show, which is that all the stuff that Lenny Bruce was prosecuted and jailed for were the kind of jokes that if he made them today, or someone made them today, really they wouldn't be that controversial. He he got in trouble for talking about Eleanor Roosevelt's tits, for gay sex, for the idea of having sex with a chicken. Those were in court documents, but ironically, his whole bit about are there any N-words in the room, which is sort of the one bit that we remember from Lenny Bruce more than 50 years later, that was not in, that he was not prosecuted for that, which I find very interesting, you know? I mean, in that, there were different taboos at the time than there are today. And that in many cases, you could say that there isn't really a problem. It's very easy to get internet pornography. If a comedian wants to talk about sex in the most explicit way or gay sex or anything like that, there isn't going to be a problem with that today. It's really this whole new set of stuff that are the, are the, are the new taboos. Do, do you agree with that? I think the taboos, I mean, I, I can't point to them because then I would get canceled, but no, whatever it is. Yeah. I, I think, I think in that case, you know, I can't speak to it because I don't remember exactly what, you know, he was getting in trouble for, but it was one of the, you know, you, you felt like the, the taboos that we're dealing with are essentially anytime anyone is, it comes from a place that doesn't have white privilege. <clears throat> so like anything you're talking about, you can't talk about as I was saying before. So it's, that's, that's, and the thing is you can go into those areas, but you have to be Joe Rogan and you have a hundred million dollars or you have to be Dave Chappelle and you have a hundred million dollars. But if you don't have a hundred million dollars and you say something, then you may not eat ever again and you may get canceled. And you look at like Kathy Griffin, whatever she's worth as a comedian, you know, like, why are we reading articles about her, you know, having to come back from her apology to her? It's, it's like she, yes, she may have crossed the line, but it's, you know, I mean, like, the same people who are upset about one thing changed their mind on another thing. So it's like now, when Kathy it, Griffin was was I mean that she 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 had a, she posed with a photo of like holding Donald Trump's head like like ISIS, right? Yes, that's what I, my understanding. Yes, I'm not. But what I'm saying is it's th there are certain taboos. Like if you look at like I mean I, again I you don't want to talk about politics, but like Trump has said some of the worst things in the world and got you know supposedly over seventy million votes. And Mel Gibson said something that was considered anti-Semitic, and now he can't work for decades. I think he's back though now, right? Well, no, but he's. But I'm saying there's still there's still like yeah. an ending. We will never forgive. The Hollywood community will never forgive. Whereas, 70 million people heard much worse things said by our president, and they're like, "I'm still on board." So, it, it also becomes a question of who are you trying to please? Because everyone's got, you know. The, they've got their own ideas of what is right and wrong. And well, so I, I would, I would push back slightly on that. I think that some of the 
Trump support was coming from people who felt that the, the kind of cultural taboo system itself was rigged. So he, if, but if you're talking about just the closed community, the closed loop of Hollywood, then that, you know, you can't be like Donald Trump and expect that like, well, there'll be a faction of Hollywood that'll be cool with it and they'll put it out. There isn't like, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'll ask you this. Is there a studio? Is there a network? Or is there a platform right now that's saying, you know what, we're going to, we're going to ignore all this cancel culture, woke stuff. And what we're going to do is we're going to seek out the bravest comedians and the bravest writers and produce content that we know will probably offend some people, but it's in the interest of free speech and free expression and the future of comedy, that the vitality of comedy itself that we do that. Is there anyone doing that in the Hollywood system right now or among the big tech platforms? I, I don't know of it because, but it, but it's not even a question of like trying to be, I just, I would like to, to be able to express comedy that I can't express. And I think sometimes when <laughs> people do things outside the Hollywood system, then it comes back in. Like, I, I think if you ever watched that Cobra Kai show, yeah, like the Karate Kid new version. But the first thing, like there are a lot of jokes and lines in there that they got away, not away, that, that they did that would not have passed muster if it had gone through a studio system, but they kind of made it on the fringe that it became popular. So now it gets grandfathered in as like, oh, this already existed. So you can't be upset. Like everybody's like nobody's in this business, I think. I mean, the only reason anyone's in any business is to to make money and to copulate. So it's like, you're just, that's all life is. So everybody in this business, like as an executive once told me, they're going to be woke till they're broke. And then once, once they're not woke, if you're like, once they're broke, they don't have to be woke anymore. Cause they're like, Hey, we tried that and now we're broke. So now we, we can do whatever we want. But on the, you know, we're, we're now on this path of like having, you know, social messaging be a bigger part than comedy. And I think once the audience in general says, I'm not paying for this, then, then, then the, the pockets turn and they go, okay, sorry, I'm out of money. I can't pay you for your social mission anymore. I got to hire the people that are getting laughed at. And I just don't know when that, that happens, but it's not, that's, a, that's an interesting, I think we've stumbled upon maybe a way out of this, which is to say that the people who normally are not the boycotters, people who just want to laugh and find, you know, and, and are not offended that something might exist that if somewhere on the internet or somewhere that it might offend them need to organize and boycott the boycotters. That there has to be kind of a countervailing social pressure that we, so we can hasten the day of, of, of going woke to your broke. Right. But I, and I, I think, I think that it, it, it winds up becoming this, this, demographic large change that that no one individually pushes it just becomes people are excited you know like i don't know what it would be but like if there was that raunchy comedy that somebody put out and it made 200 million dollars you know you can bet there are going to be a thousand raunchy comedies coming in the next five years but right you know, and then and then you you know you, you could argue when are we going to see strong women, like, you know, superheroes on the screen? When are we going to see that? And you're like, all right, well, there is the 355, which was a movie that tanked recently about like five international women who were all like super spies. And you suddenly go, oh, they thought saying now women are in charge and they're the superheroes, we're not superheroes, but they're the super spies. That's going to bring audiences in. And, you know, I think that sends a, a message when audiences don't show up. They're like, all right, we made this thing, but 
people don't want it. So now we got to make the thing people want. I think there's a, there's a huge misunderstanding about Hollywood. It's like no one, no one, as I said before, like no one's out here as much on a social mission as to promote their own agenda and to hopefully get a big mansion and just to have lots of sex. That's, <laughs> that's, you know, every, that's what everybody wants. And so, and that's like, and if they're not giving big, they would also like your children to be transgender. <laughs> Kidding. That's a joke. Okay. But you know, there's a, you know, like I, I, I feel like what, what is, what is hard is that, that, you know, we're people our age are trapped between two me generations. And yes. So, so we're just sitting here going, Hey, I'm just trying to live, leave me alone. And then, you know, our, our, the, the, our elders are going, no, it's all about what I want. And, and then it's the younger people going, I can't hear words. I don't want to hear because I get triggered and I can't be uncomfortable. And we're just in the middle of going, we're always uncomfortable. Like that's yeah, just it's like, it's, it's like we're, we're caught between one generation that wants all comedy to be making fun of people who don't get the vaccine. And then another generation that wants all comedy to be like Anna Gatsby and you know, what happened to hilarity? What happened to just humor and being funny? I think it's a very good point. Yeah. The Gen X will save comedy. Yeah. And if, <laughs> the what will save, oh, the, the generation X will save comedy. But I, I do think, you know, what I find interesting is, and I don't know when it was, but I remember like when I was doing stand up back and whatever. And then around like 2007 or eight, I really got to a point where I was like, there's nothing you can't talk about on stage. Like you can't shock an audience anymore because you can really just talk about anything. Right. And I was right. like, I don't know where you go from here. And so the only where that there was to go is now we make it so you can't talk about things. Oh, no, no, no. Now, now you can shock people if you say, boy, did I love the Cosby show. That's now that's it. That I, I love the Cosby show. And you know what? I, I'm a little sick of wearing a mask. Yeah. And, and but I mean, if you look at and it, I was and I was thinking about voting for Trump, that's how you shock the audience. <laughs> but I but I think like if you if you look at. You know, like everybody who's who's, you know, like, let's say that everybody who's a super lefty and like everyone should be 10 feet apart and I'm wearing a mask all the time, like nobody enjoys wearing a mask and. And everyone starts to slowly have a breaking point where they're like, you know, we're try we're, we're, we're animals, we're herd animals. We want to be close to other people. And, and, you know, you start risking, you figure how much risk am I willing to take? And then when you don't get punished for the risk of hanging out with your friends one night, and then you do it another night, you're like, oh, this is okay. You know, maybe I don't believe in the mask as much. And maybe I, now I present differently because I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Like, if, like last summer, it felt like things were back to normal. So there, the divide between everybody wasn't as clear as I'm anti-mask or I'm pro-mask. It was, it was just, I know I'm, I'm going off on a stupid point, but my, my point is that, they, that, that people start to shift from a position that they, you know, thought they would hold fast to, to, you know, whatever they need to hear. Like nobody wants to wear a mask. So if the New York Times says, Hey, if you're triple vaxxed and this and this, the worst that's going to happen is you'll get a cold. That might take somebody who's been not seeing their friends and saying, I now am willing to do this. And you might get information somewhere else that, that tells you, you know, to act differently as well. But, you, but it has to be this, in the same way that I think there, there isn't a momentary, there's not, there's not a, a ground zero explosion of change. It's just once, you know, you get to a tipping point, then I think whether it's comedy or society, things, things move fast, you know? So hopefully, you know, comedy will be, will be back in a way where, you can point things out and not worry that your livelihood will be taken away from you or that you need to be shunned, you know, publicly. That, that's uh, why it's so hard because 
unless you have the means behind you, as I said, like a Chappelle or Rogan, where you already have legions of fans and they're not going to run away from you, you can say more things. I mean, I, there's so many times I've thought similar things to what Dave Chappelle is saying, but if I tweet them, I take them down because I'm like, oh, this could end my career. And when he says that, you know, people are standing up and clapping. So it's like, I'm not the person who's going to get the clapping, but I am on board with a lot of what, you know, the, the comedy about what's going on in the world. I just want to fact check one thing you said. There, there is a group of people who do like masks, bandits, there you um, historically speaking. But other than that, spot on. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. John's very busy. He's got a table read coming up. Mm. And this is the show, The War on Comedy. And thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you uh, in a couple days. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.